Uh, we've been going through a series in Acts uh, called He's Still Here. And we find ourselves this morning uh, in Acts chapter 8. We've got 25 verses uh, to work through this morning. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn with me to Acts chapter 8. And I'm going to begin this morning just by reading those first 25 verses. And it says, And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church, and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds, with one accord, paid attention to what was being said by Philip. When they heard him and saw the signs that he did, for unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. But there was a man named Simon, who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him, because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip, as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them and they they received the Holy Spirit. But when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Opposition. We are now entering, or now in, the month of September, and the word opposition will increasingly be on the lips of everyone who is a footy fan. Uh, In the O'Donnell household, we take our football incredibly seriously and we are often discussing the opposition when watching the football. In fact, I would say we have coached many teams to victory from our living room because of the tactics with which we have um, considered concerning the opposition. We've often looked on and thought, look, Pendlebury's just getting a little bit too much ball there in the forward half, someone's got to tag him. We've got to sort that out really quickly. Uh, they're just getting too much forward entry. You know what, let's send Luke Hodge back, play the extra man back and chop it off a little bit, sit in the hole. This is a day in the life of football with my dad and brothers watching the footy. So opposition is something that we're always talking about in our household. And to be honest, this is something that every coach would be considering at an even greater level at this time of year as they prepare their finals campaign. 
In fact, I can even remember playing um, local football, even in under-16s, and knowing the name of my direct opponent on the other team. In (laughs) under-16s. It's like, Jaden, you are tagging Chris Mitchell today. Don't let him go. So knowing your opposition is important when you're going into battle in terms of sporting. But then how much more for the Christian life? As we continue to bring the gospel forward, the message of the kingdom, we need to know that there are going to be opponents that we come up against. And in this particular text, we're going to see four different categories of opponent that we need to be aware of as Christians as we see the gospel go forward. So, the first of those opponents that we see come up in this text is opponents who persecute us. That's the first opponent that we see here. Uh, If you were here two weeks ago, you'll know that uh, Pete actually spoke on heroes. And uh, one of the heroes of the faith that I've come to love over time is a second century pastor and theologian by the name of Tertullian. Uh, I had to do an an assignment, an essay on Tertullian uh, for one of my essays through uni and I kind of developed a bit of a man crush pretty quickly with his writing, so I'm a big Tertullian fan. And he wrote a volume called uh, his Apology. Now don't don't think he was apologising to anyone, think apologetics, he's defending the faith. And he wrote a volume to the the Roman emperor of the time, the Roman authorities, and he was basically just crying out in this volume about the injustice uh, that was going on towards the Christians. Uh, There was a real kind of superstition concerning Christians at that particular time in history. I mean, if there was a bit of a famine going on in Rome, uh, maybe something was up with the weather, a bit of a plague, whatever was going on in Rome, if it wasn't favourable, there was one answer, Christians to the lion, every time gather them into the Colosseum, send out the lions, get rid of them. That's what they were facing. But then in writing this volume, as Tertullian is defending the faith and he's he's saying just how unjust and superstitious this treatment is, there's also a kind of cheeky, concurrent theme running alongside this theme of injustice. And it's a theme that effectively says that persecute us all you like. You're actually... um, You're just poking the bear. (laughs) What you're doing is perpetuating your own problem. This is what he ended up saying as he concluded this volume called The Apology. He says, Nor does your cruelty, however exquisite a value, it is rather a temptation to us. The oftener we are mown down by you, the more in number we grow. The blood of Christians is seed. You see, Tertullian played host to the conviction that if you persecute Christians, the gospel's just going to go further. He says, do what you like. It's unjust treatment, but if you keep doing it, you're only going to have a bigger problem on your hand. Let me tell you another story. I only just read about this one in the last week. In uh, 1839, there were two men from the London Missionary Society, and they made their way over to uh, a place called the New Hebrides, which is uh, modern-day Vanuatu. And basically, their intent was to bring the gospel to these islands. And when they got there, within minutes of going ashore, they were eaten. Cannibals ate them. They were trying to bring the gospel to cannibal tribes and they were eaten with moments of going on shore. And so many others, including a man by the name of John Patton, over a century, started to try and bring the gospel to these islands under much hostility. They had to move around to different islands for different types of persecution. But John Patton... um, It's said now, and I'm quoting from John Piper's book, 21 Servants of Sovereign Joy, highly recommend it. He says that today, over a hundred years after the death of John Patton, about 92% of the population of Vanuatu identifies itself as Christian, 
perhaps 41% of the population being evangelical. And about 50 years after these first two men were martyred, they were eaten by cannibals, about 50 years later, John Patton reflects on those who had gone before him and he writes these words. He says, Thus were the new Hebrides baptized with the blood of martyrs, and Christ thereby told the whole Christian world that he claimed these islands as his own. Can you hear this common thread in the words of Tertullian and John Patton? They both hold this conviction that when the church is persecuted, it typically gives rise to greater gospel fruit. And that is exactly what we see in these opening chapters here, in um, opening verses of chapter 8. We've got our first martyr, Stephen. Pete spoke about that two weeks ago. He's stoned to death. And then Saul is going around ravaging the church. He's literally going around house to house, dragging men and women off into prison. It's described as a day of great persecution. And yet, what's the result? It says they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. All right, so they're scattered. What do scattered Christians do? Well, it tells us there in verse 4. Those who were scattered went about preaching the word. There's no retreat. There's no withholding. There's no change of tactic. They're just continuing to do the thing they were doing back in Jerusalem. So this is how the gospel is going forward. And don't you remember, this is what Jesus predicted back in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. You see, there's a pattern throughout the book of Acts and throughout all of church history that whenever you turn up the heat, whenever the dial turns up in terms of the persecution of the church, the gospel spreads. It's a pattern that we need to notice. Now, now what am I saying? That like th- these these martyrs, the early church, were some kind of like Jedis who were disengaged from their emotions and weren't affected by the persecution at all? Not at all. I mean, it even says here that devout men buried Stephen and great lamentation uh, was the result. But what it does show is that overarchingly, despite all this suffering, there's an interpretive grid that Luke is trying to showcase for us here, and that's that if you persecute Christians, the gospel goes forward. Now, a little bit of a question that comes up there. It says that all were scattered except the apostles. What's going on there? Do they just decide to drop the ball at the last minute? You know what? Just send in the sheep. Don't worry about the shepherds. Is that, is that what's going on there? No, <clears throat> no, they're not abandoning the post. They're not dropping the ball. Uh, some say that they originally scattered but then decided to go back after things had settled down a little bit. Others say that the persecution was after more of the Hellenist Greek Christians and so the apostles weren't immediately affected being Jewish. We're not completely sure, but we need to know that long story short, they're not abandoning ship. Uh, Peter has abandoned his Lord before him. He's grown and uh, in this instance, he's not going to abandon the church. So just to clarify that one for you. So where does this land for us? In Australia, um, we're not exactly getting dragged out of our homes right now, but um, I think it's fair to say that we're starting to see the deterioration of Christendom a little bit. There's some curious political decisions being made, especially around the sanctity of marriage, around the humanity of the unborn. There's a bit of tension in the air in Australia at the moment. And so granted, that there should be uneasiness about us. There should be a sense of righteous anger. And in the right way, if we're going about it the right way, we should fight back and push back against these moves. But then at the same time, do we ever just pause, stop and think and say, I wonder if the dial turns up in Australia, 
would that actually lead to greater revival? But if, if the heat turns up more in Australia, if we keep seeing this trajectory move forward where things are becoming less and less Christian, would more people actually come to faith? Historically, that's actually been the pattern. So it's not to say we sit back and we don't advocate and push back and, and speak out for the life of the unborn or anything like that. But we should have a sober-mindedness and say, perhaps Jesus will do something with this. You know, um, Pete and I were at a uh, City Leaders Network meeting recently, just over a week ago, and someone from the Open Doors Ministry, which is an organisation that looks after the persecuted church worldwide, and they made the following remark. They said, I've seen a lot of people survive persecution. I've never seen anyone survive prosperity. And maybe that's a bit of a mindset we need to adopt here in Australia. What if greater hostility was the sovereign means through which many people come to faith in Australia? So Project Church, let, let's keep going. That, that, that's the takeaway. Let's keep doing what Jesus said. Let's continue to pray for boldness and continue to share the gospel with those who don't know Christ. As uh, A.W. Pink once put it, he said this. He said, God is working out his eternal purpose, not only in spite of human and satanic opposition, but by means of them. So let's keep going. So what's the next opponent we encounter? Well, the next opponent there in the text is demonic opponents, which seems like a weird thing to talk about when I've got a Sound of Music background. Just, just saying. Um, nonetheless. So they're in Samaria now. The gospel is spreading. Uh, they're on new territory, which means there's going to be new opposition to the gospel. And so in some sense, they're facing an opponent they haven't yet faced at this stage. They've, they've encountered Saul and the synagogues and Sadducees and stonings and the Sanhedrin. But now their opponent comes in the form of magic. And some of you might be going, really? Is that, is that where you want to go today, Jaden, with your sermon? You want to talk about magic? You're saying that like, they escaped Saul back in Jerusalem and then Harry Potter and the boys rock up in Samaria? Like, is that... Is that what we're talking about today? Like, well, yeah, we are. Magic exists because demons exist. Ultimately, the manifestation of power that is exhibited in magic is possible because it's fueled by the supernatural demonic spirits behind them. Paul made this pretty clear to the church in Ephesus. He said, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now, let's be clear for a moment. Demons are typically, like their normative operation is at a non-tangible spiritual level, okay? So for some of us, we need to stop blaming demons for everything. They're not the reason you didn't get a car park. They're not the reason you didn't get the job. They're not the reason you're having a bad hair day. And let's be honest, they're, they're probably not the reason we yell at our family sometimes. That's just our sinful flesh. Sometimes demons get a little bit too much credit. But having said all that, they have been known to manifest in the physical realm. This, this is the thing that happens. We see it there in verse 11 that people paid attention to Simon because he amazed them with his magic. So clearly it's something that people can actually see. Now I'm not super familiar with the occult, so I've had some curious reading to do this week. Um, I read a case study uh, this week about a man named Daniel Holm. And his mother was said to be a seer. She was caught up in occult 
practices. And a few months after she passed away, he started noticing some very strange happenings around the household. Uh, He would be lying in bed, only to hear what sounded like a hammer banging at the end of his bed. Unexplainable, couldn't see anything, but could hear something going on. Uh, Furniture would start to move around the house, unexplainably. In fact, one day he describes that he was brushing his hair, looking through the mirror, only just to notice as he was brushing that there was a chair creeping up ever closer to him, just about getting ready to squash him, and he just frantically ran out of the house. These things happen. So his aunt, who was living with him, was just petrified about all this stuff. She called over a handful of ministers who uh, offered their services of sorts. But effectively, this guy, Daniel Holm, actually subscribed to the idea that what was going on in his house was in the power of God. He thought, well, where else would this power be coming from? It must be the power of God. And he got caught up in some pretty nasty stuff. He recalls that at, at some times, visible hands would appear out of the air, open Bibles in the room and start quoting scriptures, but horribly out of context. He, he, if you've, you know, you've got this invisible hand hanging out in your house, opens the Bible. Here's an example of one scripture that was read. Matthew 13, verses 16 to 17. It says, But blessed are your eyes, for they see... And your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. So this demonic force knew the Bible and was taking things out of context to convince this man that what he was seeing was in the power of God. His aunt was also, um, at one point, so upset with the furniture moving, she um, jumped onto the table and then started levitating off the floor. This stuff exists. And and don't think for a moment it's only in certain countries. This is actually a Western phenomenon more than you may think. In fact, I I worked with a a colleague in my last job and she subscribed quite often and uh, when her daughter turned 18, decided she'd give her daughter an 18th birthday present to the idea of having your palm read and and tarot cards and the healing power of crystals that she would often describe them to me. And, And I would ask her, so tell me about these experiences when you go to see these people. What's that like for you? And she said, well, you're aware of a, there's something in the room. that There's a palpable, dark presence in the room. And she would go on to explain to me that for days afterwards, she would have these unexplainable pains in her body, didn't know where they would come from. If I recall correctly, I think they even moved. And, you know, I would offer my interpretation of these events, but she didn't want to hear it. <laughs> this stuff is real. But we need to know that this is not the activity of God. In fact, it is an abomination to him. Um, Listen to what Moses has to say about it in uh, Deuteronomy 18. He says, When you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not learn to follow the abominable practices of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offering. Anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens or a sorcerer or a charmer or a medium, or a necromancer, or one who inquires of the dead. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. And because of these abominations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you. You shall be blameless before the Lord your God. For these nations which you are about to dispossess, listen to fortune tellers and to diviners. But as for you, the Lord your God has not allowed you to do this. Okay, so it's not cool to play with Ouija boards. It's, it's not cool to dabble in tarot cards on the side. You are entering into another domain. This stuff's legit. 
You see, as the gospel goes forward, we are preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. And we need to know that we're actually up against another kingdom. There is a clashing of the kingdoms that goes about when we are preaching the gospel. Jesus made that explicitly clear in Matthew chapter 12. Probably my favorite book and one of my favorite chapters in Matthew. You see, the Pharisees were were accusing Jesus as he was casting out demons, going, well, he's having so much success with it. He must be casting out demons in the power of Satan. But then Jesus kind of pushed back at the Pharisees and said, hey, look, if, if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? So Jesus identifies the fact that Satan, the demonic forces, operate as a kingdom as such. But what Jesus also made clear in this same chapter is that this kingdom is a defeated kingdom. Because of Christ's triumph over Satan in the wilderness and then subsequently through his death and resurrection, it says that he bound the strong man. He, he has bound Satan. Satan is the strong man of Matthew chapter 12. And this is why Jesus was able to exercise demons with such relative ease. The, the demons would see him coming and just be like, son of man, leave me alone. He took out the top dog. I mean, we spoke about uh, football opponents earlier. This is basically like knocking out Gary Ablett out of Geelong. You take out Ablett, you can probably beat them. And that's what Jesus did. Take out Satan, I've got your demons covered. You see, we can't bind the strong man. Jesus did that for us. But now because Christ did that and we are his ambassadors, we carry that same authority. We are actually representatives of God's kingdom. And so when we see here in Acts that Philip and the other Christians, they're preaching the gospel of the kingdom, of course, we're going to see manifestations of this clashing. There's unclean spirits being exercised. People are being miraculously healed. Sometimes the demonic influence is what's causing the pathology and that's why they're healed. You can go either way with that one. And what's the result? Well, it tells us there in verse 8. It says that there was great joy in that city. You see, when people hear the gospel and they respond to the gospel and their lives are transformed by the gospel, it results in joy. And the miraculous signs that accompany the gospel of the kingdom, when they're legitimate, it is incredible. Jesus came, he said, to set the captives free, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the recovery of sight to the blind. You see, when it's legit, it's incredible. Christian, do you know that you carry that authority? When when you share the gospel in your workplace, in your school, you are representatives of a kingdom. That's one way to think about your evangelism this week. And this is actually a tool that you have at your disposal. You're an ambassador ambassador of Christ. And if you should stumble across demonic opposition as you share the gospel, you have authority over it. And it's not because you're powerful. We're not, but it's because Christ is. And we need to remember that this authority that we have is a borrowed authority. And it's authority that we ought to exercise uh, in a state of humility. Yeah, I remember um, many years ago, it's probably, we're getting on 12, 13 years ago now, I remember playing pool uh, in a mate's garage some years ago. I was over there quite a bit actually. And his dad was a missionary in Mozambique. And I was, you know, playing pool as we typically did. And his dad called me into the lounge room. Jaden, do you want to just come in here for a moment? Sure. Came on in. And I'll never forget, he pointed his finger up to the air like this. <laughs> he said, Jaden, have you ever seen someone possessed by a demon? I'm like, oh, welcome to the living room. Um, I said, no, sorry, Greg, I, I haven't seen that. He said, all right, well, watch this video with me. 
And so he played a video of a woman that he had baptized in Mozambique who had recently come to faith out of a life of witchcraft. And so I'm watching this video when it seemed like just a garden variety, normal baptism service, you know, bringing her down into the waters of baptism seemed normal, but in coming up, (coughs) demonic manifestation. She was writhing and convulsing and uh, I'm obviously quite taken aback by this. I'm like, goodness, okay, this is not a normal baptism. I haven't seen this. And then my mate's dad, he just went on to explain that this is actually pretty common for them in Mozambique. He's like, oh yeah, the, the demons can't stand the waters of baptism. Gets them every time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but what am I trying to point to here? The casualness in his tone. That's what I want you to notice there. You see, seeing people delivered from unclean spirits, that's just the toy that comes with a Happy Meal. It, it, it's... It's the garnish that comes with the T-bone steak. It's not the main thing. And sadly, we forget this. You see, there can actually be a very hurtful, unhelpful uh, over-obsession with miraculous signs, both healing and exorcism. Listen to what Jesus had to say about it. He commissioned his disciples. He gave them authority to go and see people healed, to see demons come out of people. And this is what Jesus said to them uh, on, return, on, on return. This is the account that we're given in Luke 10. It says the 72, that's how many he commissioned, returned with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. What's Jesus saying here? Let let me kind of paraphrase it for you. So what? (laughs) So what? Big deal. The demons are subject to you? So what? I saw Satan fall, fall from heaven. So what? Seeing demons cast out, that is the garnish next to your 500 gram T bone steak called the gospel. You want to rejoice? Rejoice that people's names are being written in the book of life. That's the real miracle. And so when we see the gospel go forward here in Acts and all these incredible things are happening, happening, keep your eye on the main thing. These are just the byproducts of the gospel transforming people's lives. And so perhaps for some of us, like the disciples, we need to be a little bit realigned in our thinking here. And we actually need to know that if we don't align these kingdom priorities that we see here in Acts, it's actually a trajectory of thought that can lead you to a very dark place. If you keep wandering down that particular rabbit hole with an obsession with power, I would even go as far as to say that's an equally demonic pathway. And we're going to consider that now. It's happened in the life of Simon. So the next opponent that we encounter is corrupt opponents. Let me just read verses 14, um, uh, sorry, from verse 18 down again. It said, Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone in whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. So there are people um, who are around, like Simon, who instead of seeing the beauty of the kingdom going forward. They want to harness the power of the kingdom for their own agenda. 
And so we have this man here, Simon, he's professing of himself that he was great, uh, so much so that it kind of became a bit of a folklore that this man is the power of God that is called great. Now, this isn't like any kind of direct claim to deity. Simon isn't saying, I'm God, but he's saying that of all the powers that God has, I'm the great one. So he's, he's pushing up there. It's not quite a claim to divinity, but it's not far off. And so people have been paying attention to Simon for a very long time. But then Simon actually notices a shift in the air. He notices that ticket sales are down in Samaria. He's saying that not as many people are attracted to the show anymore. What's going on? And he sees that the good news about the kingdom of God is bringing people to Jesus. And it's, there's a changing of the guard that's happening here in Samaria. No longer are people subscribing to him. They're being delivered out of the domain of darkness. So what does Simon do? Well, it says that he too believes and was baptized. So Simon shows the outward appearance of conversion. He even participated in baptism. So whatever sense he believed in, he convinced Philip that his conversion was legitimate, so much so that Philip felt it okay to baptize him. But then we just get a little glimpse of his downfall there in verse 13. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. <laughs> now, now, don't get me wrong. Is there a healthy sense of amazement that comes when someone witnesses a miracle? Totally. I mean, I, I pray we get a bit amazed here at the project in time. You know, at, um, my brother's 21st, my brother Zeb, um, he invited someone along there and um, as you do at a 21st, uh, we were dancing um, and one of his friends, he was, he was dancing well. I mean, he was cutting some serious shapes. I was quite impressed. I would even say a bit jealous. He was um, an incredible dancer. But um, as much as that was exciting me and just watching that, what gripped me was the joy on his face. There was an ecstasy in his face when he danced. Do you know why? The Lord saved him out of a wheelchair. He had spent his life in a wheelchair and he's at my brother's 21st birthday party just cutting up the dance floor, <laughs> doing his thing. And you could, it, it, was, it was boring on Worshipful. I mean, the music probably wasn't, but in terms of the look on his face, my goodness. It's beautiful when it's legitimate. <laughs> yes, you should be amazed. But when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. This is power lust. It's miraculous obsession and it's wicked. And as you read on, Peter knows that. He, he rebukes him pretty heavily. And the language that Peter uses here is curse language. He says, You are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And what he's doing here, his words here kind of echo Deuteronomy 29, uh, where there's an image of a root producing bitter poison, which describes a person going after false gods and getting other people to go along also. So this is a solemn warning for us. Um, Robert Tannehill put it this way. He said, whenever religion, whenever religion is used to make its leaders seem great and powerful... And whenever religion becomes a commodity by serving the interests of those who have or want money, it has become corrupt. And sadly, this has been all too familiar in the Western church, hasn't it? I mean, how many more TV evangelists do the church have to witness that are obsessed with gold more than the gospel? I've seen it wreck so many lives. How, how many quote-unquote faith healers are more interested in the temporal rather the, than the eternal? They're just manipulating people with gimmicks for their own gain. 
In fact, the kind of belief we see from Simon here is the same kind of belief that Jesus encountered during his earthly ministry. And in John chapter 2, this is what Jesus says. It says, Many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. Jesus knows that there is a category of so-called belief that doesn't equate to saving faith. And often it is associated with people being caught up in the signs and not in the person of Jesus. Jesus has no interest in that. Now, now one might ask, okay, all right, he, he messed up, granted, um, but surely at the end of the text here, he shows some kind of repentance. You know, he says, pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. But the consensus among theologians is that the language he uses here is actually more of a concern for escaping the consequences of the curse. He doesn't want his heart to be restored. This is just one magician trying to get away from another magician. He's trying to avoid a curse. How else do we confirm that? Well, in church history, our second century uh, theologian Justin Martyr, uh, he was said, and I'm quoting uh, theologian Peterson, he said, um, he represents Simon as empowered by demons to perform magic and as later on in Rome as a god. So it seems that there's a bit of a Simon tradition that pops up in later centuries in the church and they equate it back to this guy. Furthermore, there is actually a term that was used in the early church to describe uh, when someone tried to buy their way into a church office. Do you know what that term was? Simony. Simony. Basically, the event we see here became a model, a marker, a, a, a term coined to describe people trying to buy their way into a church office. So there's really no evidence in the text or in church history that Simon truly repented here. So what's the take-home for us? Well, first of all, let's be on guard for merchant ministers. And there's, there's a really easy way to tell the legit from the non-legit. What is the central focus of their message? is the central focus Jesus and the gospel, with no doubt some signs as the garnish, or is the central focus the signs and no gospel? That's basically how you tell the difference. So be discerning. And secondly, let me ask you this. Where do you see power and money intersecting in your life? Now, you may not be a phony TV evangelist. Maybe you are, I'm not sure. But is there any way in which you are demonstrating the kind of attitude Simon displays here? Where you're seeking to acquire power for your own agenda? It's worth pondering. We encounter one more opponent in this text, and that's reconciled opponents. Let's read verses uh, 14 to 17 again. It says, Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any on them, <clears throat> any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, typically, these four verses are actually used as a proof text to say that there are two stages in our conversion. Uh, step number one, you've got baptism into Jesus. Step Number two, baptism into the Holy Spirit. Uh, first of all, you, you get baptized into Jesus, you're kind of like a 0.5 of a Christian, and then when you get baptized into the Holy Spirit, you're among the, the Christian elite. You, you know, you're, you're fully orbed, you're top of the shelf, now you're a, a Holy Spirit baptized Christian. And I'll be honest, I, I grew up believing this. I grew up 
Pentecostal. So I've seen many faithful ministers uh, teach this particular doctrine from this verse. And, and it, it did actually affect um, the, the practical in the church. So it affected altar calls. So often if you were calling people to repentance, you almost had to have two lines. It was like, well, column A, if, if you want to be baptized into Jesus today, will you come on to this side of the room? And then if there's any already baptized Jesus, you know, baptized in the name of Jesus people in the congregation, will you come gather on this side of the room and we're going to empower you now with the Holy Spirit? As though there was two phases uh, to our conversion. It, it also affected pastoral care in some sense. If, if someone was experiencing a lack of joy, maybe some sin that they were having trouble um, working their way through, one of the, um, the answers people would often come up with is, well, wait a minute, I, I think I know what might be wrong. Have you been baptized in the Holy Spirit? What do you mean by that? Oh, well, you might be like a, a Christian. You might know Jesus, but have you had like the second phase of your Christianity happen yet? And I've got to be honest, I grew up believing this. And maybe those are convictions that perhaps some of us hold today. Um, but what I want to propose to you now is that this text is actually not teaching a two-stage conversion, but there's actually something very different going on here. Um, <coughs> You may remember a couple of months ago, there was a very tense, nervous, sweaty young man named Jaden. Uh, he was going for the associate pastor role. He did a sermon about here. Yeah, I don't really remember him that well, but he was quite um, sweaty and nervous that particular day. And if you remember that sermon, you might remember that I said that Pentecost is not something that we used to try and reproduce uh, a Sunday service. We don't take Acts chapter 2 and reproduce that in our Sunday services, but that Pentecost was a, a moment in redemptive history when the Holy Spirit first came upon the church. And so in a similar manner, what we're seeing here is what some have called a Samaritan Pentecost. This is the first time the Holy Spirit comes upon the people in Samaria. Um, there's a very tense history between Jews and Samaritans. And if you read the New Testament, you're going to see that come out in all sorts of places. Uh, you can trace it back all the way to the Old Testament where you see the, the southern kingdom of Judah, the northern kingdom of Israel. That's really where it started. Uh, you can see traces of it in Jesus' parables. You know, he talks about the good Samaritan and the fact that you could say Samaritan and good in the same sentence was a big shock to the Pharisees. And that was a big thing uh, when he shared that parable. And then you see it come out again in John chapter 4, verse 9. Uh, there's a Samaritan woman that speaks to Jesus and she says to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. You see, there's this long-standing, deep-seated hostility. Effectively, there was as much rivalry between Jews and Samaritans as there was between Jews and Gentiles. So when we read in verse 14 that the apostles heard that the word of God had been received in Samaria, what we actually see there in verse 14 is there is a response from Jerusalem. They send Peter and John. It's as if God sovereignly says to Peter and John, I've got to show you something. Come, come with me down to Samaria. That's what the Spirit seems to be doing here. And they're sending the apostles, not because they're the only ones who can administer the Holy Spirit. The, the apostles didn't have magic hands. No, they're there to authenticate the conversion of the Samaritans and to witness their baptism in the Holy Spirit. Now, why would that happen? What God is doing here is He's tearing down the walls of hostility. There had been so much tension between these two people groups for such a long period of time. The Jews had 
developed something of a superiority complex and saw themselves as far better than the Samaritans. So the Holy Spirit comes down, says to John and Peter, come down, I've got something to show you. The gospel is going to other nations now. Nathan sung it a moment ago. All the nations will come to gather to worship the king, all colors and tongues singing as one. The earth is the Lord's. That's what we're seeing here. The gospel is now reaching new territory. Theologian Wayne Grudem says it this way. He says, The event in Acts 8 was a kind of Samaritan Pentecost, a special outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the people of Samaria, who were a mixed race of Jewish and Gentile ancestry, so that it might be evident to all that the full new covenant blessings and power of the Holy Spirit had come to this group of people as well and were not confined to Jews only. And then as a means of uh, driving my point home here, there was another really helpful quote by a guy named Jeffrey Lampy. He said it this way. He said, At this turning point in the mission, something else was required in addition to the ordinary baptism of converts. It had to be demonstrated to the Samaritans behind any, beyond any shadow of a doubt that they had really become members of the church in fellowship with the original pillars. An unprecedented situation demanded quite exceptional methods. And then as a bit of a spoiler alert, this is actually something, another pattern that we're going to see again play out in Acts chapter 10, where Peter takes the gospel uh, to Cornelius and the gospel reaches the Gentiles. Isn't this, isn't, isn't this again what Jesus predicted in Acts 1.8, that the gospel would go from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the Gentiles? And it seems with each geographical movement, there's almost like a separate Pentecost for each of those. So this is not prescriptive for us to say, well, we need a two-stage conversion. No, this is just a beautiful story of how the Holy Spirit first came upon those nations in the first century. It's a beautiful description. So we don't teach two-tier, two-stage conversion. When we receive Christ, Ephesians 1.12 says that we are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. They come together. There's not a radical dichotomy. It, it, it's similar to the kind of dichotomy that you may have heard people say, Oh yeah, in 1998, Jesus became my saviour, but it wasn't until 2003 he became my Lord. Well, the New Testament doesn't have room for that. No, if he wasn't your Lord, I can promise you, he wasn't your saviour. So we need to be careful with some of our dichotomies that the scriptures don't actually teach. Now some may really want to push back at this, and that's okay, I would love to come and chat with you about this. Um, some may say, but Jaden, I, I had a two-stage conversion. That, that's how it happened for me. So that, that must be what Acts chapter 8's teaching because that was my experience. Well, can I, can I just gently suggest that maybe this is what actually happened and I'm being as gentle as I know how to be. Well, maybe that second experience was maybe actually the first time you actually became a Christian. Maybe your heart wasn't born again before that. Maybe you'd become close to Jesus but had not yet been born again. And that greater manifestation you felt on what you called the second time was maybe actually the first time for you. Or maybe you were a Christian and then you did have what I might call a growth spurt in your sanctification. There was a period in your life, maybe someone prayed for you and there was a particular um, measure of grace given to you that you were filled with the Spirit in a continual sense and maybe you had a bit of a growth spurt in your sanctification. So yes, our experiences do have stages. I'm not denying that. But on the pages of the New Testament, we learn one conversion. Again, I'm happy to, um, to chat with anyone about that afterwards as well. Any questions on that as well, you can email me, uh, peter at theprojectchurch.com.au. Yeah. 
So the question we have to ask ourselves is this. In light of what we've just read, is there anyone, any people group, any race, any socioeconomic class that we would prefer that the grace of God would not visit? That's how the Jews felt. Do we view anyone with inferiority who we would withhold God's blessings from? You see, that was the disposition of the Jews towards the Samaritans and also towards the Gentiles, and it manifests in our own lives more often than we'd like to think, I reckon. We need to remember that the church is a classless, raceless phenomenon. And by the very nature of the gospel that it, that it represents, it should be an institution that breaks down any long-standing walls of rivalry. The gospel always unites, it never divides. And so to affirm that, I want to finish just by reading uh, Paul's words in Ephesians chapter 2. And in this context, he is talking about long-standing hostility between Jews and Gentiles. And I think the application is just as equal for the Samaritans we see here in Acts 8. Here's what he says in Ephesians 2, and then I'll pray. (coughs) But now in Christ Jesus, you, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. So making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So these are our opponents. Let's continue to share the gospel.